Guys, go ahead and grab a seat. Guys, it is, uh, it is great to be together today. I love preaching from a wet stage. I'm tempted to just have the band come up here after those baptisms, but we got a lot of work to do in Daniel chapter 8. So go ahead and find your Bibles and uh, turn to Daniel chapter 8. If you are new and we haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. You're joining us today in the back end of a study through the great Old Testament book, of Daniel, that this is week eight of 12, where we're kind of just taking um, week by week a chapter of the book of Daniel, seeking to discover the gospel according to this man, Daniel. And as we get into this today, okay, I want to remind you of the, the structure of this book. And if you remember this journey, chapters one through six are, are primarily narrative base. They're telling the story of this man, Daniel, who this book is named after, and his three friends. And, and throughout the first six chapters, we we learn of a section of human history that occurred in what is now modern-day Iraq around 2,500 years ago uh, in the height of the reign of the Babylonian Empire. And so this was right around five to 600 years before Jesus stepped foot and walked on earth. But this, as this book opened up, we saw this, this historical, tyrannical king named Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who, who conquered the nation of Judah, the Jewish people, and then he took them into slavery. And while in uh, Babylon, the Jewish people were kind of forced to lose their identity. They were indoctrinated by the ways and the philosophy and the culture of, of this nation of Babylon. And, and throughout the first six chapters, we get this kind of narrative telling this story. But as we looked at chapter seven last week, we discovered that the book kind of makes a, a dramatic shift. Right, that chapter seven, it moves from like a historic narrative type storytelling all right, into really kind of uh, an apocalyptic, prophetic literature where God is starting to tell through the man Daniel the future of the nation of Israel and really also the world. And this is the nature of, of chapters 7 through 12 through the book of Daniel. And as it relates to this idea of prophecy, I know that some of you, you've grown up in the church, you, you know your Bible, that word doesn't kind of freak you out. There's a lot of people in here, maybe you don't know your Bible super well and you're hearing prophecy and you're like, what is this? It's like a fortune teller, like what are we doing, right? But I want you to know the prophecy is really just God revealing the future in advance. And so prophecy is really all about God's promises. And this is so important for us to know because there are two threads that really weave together the Bible. It's promise and fulfillment, that if you read your scriptures, you'll, you'll see promise and fulfillment. In much of the Old Testament where we find the book of Daniel would simply fit into the category of, of promise. And then as we get into the New Testament and in throughout human history, it's the recording of fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so promise and fulfillment kind of weave together the entire Bible. It's God making promises and telling the future and then God fulfilling those promises, showing himself to be sovereign over all creation, which as we've been going through Daniel is really the big idea of this entire book. That God is the sovereign king over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And as we get into chapter eight today, okay, we're, we're gonna see another prophetic vision given to Daniel. But not just another prophetic vision, but to my estimation, guys, this is one of the most significant, amazing chapters of the entire Bible. But the truth is, guys, many people don't realize and see Daniel 8 like this because many people just never venture into the back half of Daniel because it can appear and, and really just be very confusing. You know, for example, I was uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at a gathering for a bunch of pastors here in Madison. And I know you're, you're jealous, it sounds exhilarating, right? 
but we were sitting around before this meeting, and uh, one, of the, one of the pastors started asking the group of people, hey, what are you guys preaching through right now? And they were just going around the circle. It came uh, time for me, and I said, all right, we're going through uh, the book of Daniel. And they all kind of collectively looked at me and were like, sheesh, good luck, bro, right? And then, and then one of them said, oh, we did that a couple years, couple years back. And he's like, so what are you doing, like six chapters, the six weeks, that's what you're doing? And I was like, no, I mean, there's 12 chapters, so we're doing 12 weeks. We're just going to walk through the book each, each week. And, and many of them were just completely shocked that we, we would teach through the back half of the book of Daniel because it can be so intimidating. And one of them even said, like trying to encourage me as an older pastor who I respect, he even said, man, if I would really consider what you're doing because I think the back half of Daniel is going to be more profitable if you do it in smaller groups, but it's not going to be really that good to teach on like a, a Sunday morning. Now, I totally disagree with that statement, but I do acknowledge that it can be strange and confusing, right? I mean, last week, you guys were kind of like, what is going on here? I mean, how many of you this week, you knew we were going to go through chapter 8, so you read through chapter 8 leading up to today, and you were just like, what the heck, right? Is our boy Daniel hanging out with Aaron Rodgers and eating mushrooms and drinking psychedelic tea? Like, what is going on with this guy? It's kind of crazy, but this is why we teach the Bible the way that we do. All right, if you're new, guys, our propensity as a church family is really just to go through books of the Bible. We open it up as we gather like this, and we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we do this, guys, because we don't want to skip the hard stuff. Because the truth is, no one would just randomly say, you know what I want to preach on today? Daniel chapter 8. But guys, we know, we believe that all the scriptures, the entire Bible, is breathed out by God. And it's profitable to us. It's helpful. Even crazy visions like Daniel chapter 8. So here's what I want you to know. You need to know this. Doc, so what you believe about Daniel 8 will largely determine what you believe about the rest of the Bible and the rest of your life. Hear me on this. What you believe about Daniel 8 will shape the way that you believe, or what you think about the entire scriptures and really the point of your life. And my goal today, through the help of the Holy Spirit of God, is to help us to understand Daniel 8 rightly. All right, so you ready for Daniel 8? Okay, a couple of you are pumped, the rest of you are not so sure. I'm gonna do it anyway. Verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. Okay, so we'll pause there. This is the second time in two chapters that Daniel gets a vision. And he says that this vision came in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, which puts us right around 550 BC and occurring right before the account of the downfall of Babylon that we studied in chapter 5 just a few weeks ago. And in this dream, which came two years after the dream in chapter 7, is related to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, but also Daniel's dream in chapter 7 that we looked at last week. All right, so I want you to understand this, that Daniel 7 and 8 cover similar material and they're in fact related, but they're very different. Because if you remember back to last week, okay, the dream in chapter 7 was really closely linked with the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 that dealt with four great kingdoms. Do you remember this? The Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, the kingdom of the Greeks, and then the kingdom of the Romans, right? It was this picture of, of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And it was just this impressive thing that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter two. And I want you to know, guys, this is the way that mankind tends to view human kingdoms. 
that we look at the powerful, we look at the structure, we look at the authorities, and we think, wow, that's impressive. That's powerful. That's wonderful. We tend to view human kingdoms like that. But then in chapter 7, these same kingdoms were shown, but they were seen as terrifying beasts. And I want you to know that this is the way that God views human kingdoms of the world. Not impressive at all, but sinful and distorted. And the truth is that all kingdoms and all nations of this world are like that. That just as there are no perfect people, there are no perfect nations, and there are no perfect kingdoms today. And while some are marginally better than others, all are broken, all are sinful, and all function in many ways that are antithetical to who God is and what God says. And Christian, as we look at this and consider our world today, you know what this should do? This should stir in us like a longing for the kingdom of Jesus that is coming, amen? Where everything will be perfect, where he will come and he will establish a new heaven, a new earth, and wipe away every tear from our eyes where sin and death and evil and hell, none of it. It should create a longing in us for that kingdom. But here in chapter 8, the vision that Daniel gets doesn't focus on those four kingdoms again. But instead what it does is it kind of zooms in and and focuses specifically on two of these kingdoms, the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Grecian kingdom. Now look at verse 2. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ule Canal. So Daniel, he sees something. He gets this vision from God of the future to come, and this vision that, that he gets here in both chapters 7 and 8 point to historical realities that actually came to be. And again, I hope you're kind of seeing this and learning this and leaning into this as we go through the book of Daniel, that the Bible is not just like a a spiritual book, that this is a, a historical book. And as we're watching Daniel unfold, we're seeing that things came about just as God prophesied and said. This is history. And its use, as you read through the Bible, its use of people and times and dates and locations which continue to be verified through archaeological finds throughout the years, it points to the power, the reliability, and the truthfulness of the Bible. We need to understand this, guys. This is the nature of this book that we hold in our hand and we teach every week. It's this historical book. But in this vision, okay, if you look back, Daniel finds himself in a palace in this place called Susa. And Susa was around 220 miles east of where he's located in Babylon at this point. In Susa, many years in the future, of this vision would become the capital of the Persian Empire. And in this place that he's finding himself, you know, secular history has proven that that King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire, this is the place in Susa that he built his palace. All right, so Daniel is seeing into the future, past Babylon to the coming center of power of a future empire. And in this vision, okay, there's three main characters that we're going to see. Daniel sees a ram, a goat, and a man with a bold face who's also called like a little horn, all right? So we're going to talk through all this. And in each of these characters, they're, they're pictured, but then they're given an interpretation. And so the way that I'm going to teach through this is I'm going to kind of take those pictures and interpretations, lump them together. We're going to kind of hop all over this chapter, but we're going to go through every single verse, all right? But it starts with a ram, verse 3. Daniel says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, 
and became great. So we, we get this ram. In just a minute, we're going to get a goat. So before I talk about these, let me just say this, okay? As you look at all of these beasts and animals and these visions, it can become like very strange, right, and confusing. Like this is like an ancient version of like Pokemon. Like where's Jigglypuff? He's going to pop up here any minute now, right? But I want to help you to see, guys, that this doesn't need to seem so weird, okay? Because I want you just to consider this, okay? We still use animals to denote people groups today, right? We do. I mean, just think about our country. What's the symbol of America? It's the bald eagle, right? And at the height of election season that everybody's so pumped about, right? The two, two political parties, right? What do we have? We have a donkey and an elephant. And we're in Madison, so we're in badger country, right? And we love the badgers, even though they're not doing too hot. But even more than just like loving the badgers, we hate gophers, amen? Yes. But here's the point. We can look at all these animals in Daniel's visions and we can get kind of really confused and think, man, this is weird and we might be just tempted to be like, okay, let's just skip this part. But if you just put yourself in the shoes of someone outside of America, outside of our time and place, not knowing our context, who would read about those things that I just shared, they would hear about a bald eagle soaring over a donkey and an elephant and a mighty badger that makes war against gophers, right? <laughs> And they would just be like, what the heck, right? And we would hear that. We'd be like, no, 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 it's, it's really not that confusing. Let me just like, explain this to you. This is what I want to do here with Daniel 8. What Daniel is saying is that Babylon, the most powerful nation in the history of the world up until this point, would suddenly see an empire with two horns that would defeat it. And the horns are two kings and kingdoms coming together. And historically, we know that this is actually the Medo-Persian Empire. And so the ram is representative of the Medo-Persian Empire, this joint military force that came together. This is going back to Daniel chapter 5 that defeated Babylon. And the reason that one horn is longer than the other is because the Persian Empire grew bigger and stronger and really just absorbed the Mede Empire. And this is why in your history and your college classes, when you study, you're going to hear a lot more about the Persian Empire than the Medes because it grew bigger and stronger and was more prominent. And we know this throughout our historical study that the Persian Empire, just as this vision foretold, spread greatly. It spread to the west into Babylon, Syria, and Asia Minor, to the north into Armenia and the area of the Caspian Sea, and to the south into Africa. And as you look at verse 4, Right? Verse 4 alone covers about 200 years of human history. This is incredible. All right, so the Medo-Persians conquer Babylon. That was chapter 5, and here's the interpretation of the ram. Look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Yule, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. I want you to underline that in your Bible, the time of the end. Verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So Daniel gets this revelation from God, but he doesn't really understand it, and he needs help. 
Now, how many of you, like, you read your Bible and you're like, that's how I feel every single morning. You open it up and you're like, what the heck does this mean? How am I to understand this? Guys, I want you to let, let this encourage you. Daniel needed help. He didn't understand it. And if you're in that place where you're actually starting to read your Bible, the words of God to us, and it confuses you, don't get discouraged. I want to share this with you. That God shows up and he helps Daniel to understand, and I want you to know that he helps us too. But the way that he helps Daniel is by sending an angel whose name is Gabriel. And it's so interesting as you study the Bible, only in Daniel in the Old Testament are angels named. All right, but this Gabriel who is sent by God to help Daniel is the same one who'd be sent by Zechariah, or to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist and then sent to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. We see this in Luke chapter one. And then the only other angel named in the Bible is, is Michael, who is especially assigned to care for the nation of Israel. We're gonna talk about this in a few weeks as we get into chapter 10, but God sends Gabriel to help Daniel to understand this revelation. And docs, I want you to know the truth is God also helps us to understand his revelation to us in the Bible. And I know that it would be great, right? You get up in the morning, you have your bagel, your coffee, right? You're Instagramming the whole thing or whatever you're doing, right? And you close it and then all of a sudden, like you're like, I don't know what this means. And then Gabriel just shows up, takes a sip of your coffee and is like, what do you need to know, right? And you just, like, this is awesome, right? It's not, probably not gonna happen, but I want you to know this. Just as God shows up to help Daniel understand this revelation in this dream, God shows up to help us understand his revelation in the Bible. He helps Daniel through an angel, but he helps us through his Holy Spirit. And so doxa, if you want to know the word of God, you can learn the word of God. And God will help you to understand through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you study and you meditate and you pray and you contemplate the scriptures, the Holy Spirit of God helps us you remember back to our, our study through the book of 1 Corinthians? This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in chapter 2. That it's the Holy Spirit that reveals to us the truths of God and apart from him opening up our eyes and opening up our ears and softening our heart, the Bible, the gospel, Jesus, all of it, it just seems foolish. How many of you, you're like me, you weren't following Jesus, you, you didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, and you would read the Bible before becoming a Christian, and you're like, this is just foolishness. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. I hate it. And then all of a sudden, you put your faith in Jesus, and for some reason, stuff starts to make sense. You have that story? It's the Holy Spirit of God. You didn't get smarter. You didn't get smarter, right? But the Holy Spirit opened up your eyes, and he helps us to understand his words to us. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he says the word of God is living and active, that it's the Holy Spirit of God that inspires the words of Scripture, but he also teaches us the words of Scripture. So Christian, let me just say this before I move on. Before you open up your Bible to read, start by asking the Holy Spirit of God to help you learn. This is a prayer that God would love to answer, and the only way that we're truly gonna be able to understand the deep things of God throughout the Bible. And so Daniel comes, or Gabriel comes to Daniel. If you look back to verse 16, he explains this dream. Daniel gets scared, he falls on his face, and as we read through the Bible, this is kind of like the typical expression of what happens when someone comes into the presence of God, right? That they come into the presence of God, we see his holiness, his majesty, his greatness, we see our sinfulness, and, the, and people just hit the ground, right? Let the bodies hit the floor. You remember that song? I don't know. Anyway, but... 
I don't know, I'm sorry. I think stuff, I shouldn't say it, but this is kind of what's happening. Jesus, help us. Okay. But Daniel gets lifted up by Gabriel, and Gabriel says this dream is about things to come. And he says in verses 17 and 19 that this vision is a vision of a time, of the time of the end. Now, when many people read these words, they assume immediately that Daniel is speaking about the last days or the end of the world or the second coming of Jesus, where he's going to come as king and judge the world and bring about the fullness of the kingdom of God. I want you to know, I don't think this is really the case here. All right, see, the time of the end, if we look at the context of the visions of chapters 7 and 8, we see that chapter 7 was most certainly about the end of human history with the coming of the Antichrist and the return of Jesus. This was chapter 7, for sure, talking about the end of the world, the judgment of God that will come. But here in chapter 8, it's more likely a reference to a particular person and events talked about in this chapter, specifically this bold-faced man, this little horn that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. So Gabriel tells Daniel, look at verse 19, that hard times are going to come, Israel's going to go through it, but there will be an end to it. That in giving this vision, God was actually just warning and preparing and loving his people for a difficult season that was going to come in the future, that he was helping them to say, hey, you just need to be prepared that this is actually coming. I'm going to give you this vision to prepare you to endure, knowing that this will not be the end. That, the hard time that you're going to experience will actually come to an end. And the vision begins with Babylon being conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, which will ultimately lead to per- total Persian control. Now, I want you to understand this, and this is so important. This is not God just kind of flexing and kind of doing like, look what I can do. I can tell the future, right? This is actually God showing us that he is in complete control of human history for the purpose of the redemption of sinful humanity. That this is actually pointing to Jesus, believe it or not. See, during the reign of the Babylonian Empire, the Jews, they were enslaved some 700 miles away from the promised land that God had given them. And on top of that, the temple where they worshiped God and where the presence of God dwelled with his people was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the tyrannical king Nebuchadnezzar. And as you read through the Bible, the temple is a big deal throughout the scriptures and really a big deal for the plan of God. But as the Persians take over, in 538 B.C., the king of Persia, a man named Cyrus, he releases the Jews from slavery and he allows them to go back home to the promised land. And as they head back home, they construct a new temple. And if we know our Bible, we know elsewhere that we're given the prophecy that the temple will be a key component for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so what we're seeing as Babylon is conquered by Persia, and Persia eventually lets go the people, they reconstruct a new temple. This is God orchestrating human history, preparing for the coming of Jesus, who is the hope of the world, the one that we all need. Guys, this is amazing if you actually step back and just look at it. That God has the Persians take over Babylon because his people needed to go back home. The temple needed to be opened back up because Jesus needed to come. And God is completely in control and he has this plan for his glory and our good. Daniel gives us a glimpse of this reality here. But there's another empire that will come hundreds of years into the future 
and conquer the Persians. And this is the next part of the vision with the goat. All right, look at verse 5. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from, from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eye. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now, if we think back to chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this was the third section of the statue that was bronze. Do you remember this? There was the head of gold that represented Babylon. There was the chest and the arms of silver that represented the Medo-Persian Empire. And then there was the thighs of bronze that represented the next empire that would conquer Persia. If you remember back to last week in chapter 7, this was the leopard with four heads. And you need to know that this is the empire of the Greeks. All right, God shows Daniel many years into the future that the Babylonians will be conquered by the Persians and then the Persians will be conquered by the Greeks and history shows this unfolding just like this, guys. And this is incredible. Look at verse 21 with the interpretation that Gabriel gives. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So as Daniel is getting this vision and Gabriel is just helping him to understand it, Daniel has some clarity of what's coming but still has some questions, right? Like, okay, I get this goat is Greece, but like what about these horns? Like what is all that about? And Daniel's looking into the future. We have the benefit of looking into the past. And as we look back on human history, we know and see how this all unfolded, guys, and it is incredible. All right, let me show you this. The goat represents Greece. And the great horn that was broken is representative of Alexander the Great, the first major king of Greece who conquered the world. Now pause. Guys, the Bible prophesied about Alexander the Great over 200 years before he came to power. It's wild. And even more than that, Daniel 8 shows us what's going to happen to Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. And so let me just give you like a, a brief historical sweep, sweep of Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire, okay? At a young age, Alexander the Great's parents, they were killed. And his dad was the king of Macedon. And so at a young age, probably in his early 20s, Alexander becomes king. And as a young man, he kind of sets his vision and his goals in life on amassing a giant Greek army to take over the Persians and establish a kingdom over the ruins of Babylon. And if you study history, this is exactly what happened in 334 B.C. at the battle of the, at the Granacus River, where 30,000 Greeks defeated 110,000 Persians. And historically, Alexander the Great achieved just unprecedented domination of the world, all the way from Italy to India. And he did it very quickly, very quickly. It's, I mean, we get these pictures and these visions of like a, the swiftness of the goat. He did it very, very quickly. But what happened is when he was 33 years old in 323 BC, at the height of his power and his military conquest, Alexander suddenly died. 
And this is a picture of the great horn being broken. And as he died, all right, he left behind two sons who were ultimately murdered. Their names were Alexander and Heracles. But being murdered, there was no heir to take over the throne. And so what happened is that the Grecian kingdom was actually divided up between Alexander's four powerful generals called the Diadochi. And this vision of the leopard with four heads from chapter 7 and this goat with four horns is coming to picture. Guys, Greece was actually divided up into four kingdoms ruled by four men. Historically, we know them as Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. It happened exactly. Are you seeing this? I feel like I'm at a funeral. Are you guys seeing this? This is amazing. Like prophesied hundreds of years before, and it actually happened. Guys, and this is why critics of the Bible will say, Daniel 8, there is no possible way that this is actually prophecy given hundreds of years in the future because no one argues that this actually is happened. It's so detailed, it's so precise that critics of the Bible would say, there is no way. It had to be written after the fact. And they come with a disposition that they don't believe God anyway. And so we just have to be real with kind of like, guys, the purpose of Daniel writing this was to tell the people of God what was going to happen, not to give them a history lesson of what they already walked through. You have to negate the way that this whole chapter is written. This is wild. Completely wild. You see why I'm saying this is like one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible? Like you just have to do something with this. But let me just share one more thing before we move on to the last part of this vision. All right. There's, a, there's an ancient historian, Jewish historian, named Josephus. Uh, and Josephus is considered arguably the greatest horse, uh, historian of the, the Jewish people. And in 94 AD, he writes this, his multi-volume set called The Antiquity, or really just The History of the Jews. And so Josephus, he's, he's not a Christian, but he's just a renowned Jewish history scholar. And in this, his writings, all right, he recounts history and he writes of Alexander the Great. And as Josephus writes, he records an account of a dream that Alexander the Great had. And Josephus really just describes this by, by writing that in Alexander's dream, before he conquered Persia, right, he had a dream where a man came to him wearing purple. And in this dream, this man told him, hey Alexander, this is now your time. Get your army together and go after Persia. So Alexander, he wakes up from this dream. He's, he's not a worshiper of God, a follower of God. He didn't know where this dream came from, but he assumed it was this divine revelation. And so he acted upon it, and he starts conquering with his army. And on his way to Persia, he conquers the nation of Israel, much like the Babylonians did in, in Daniel chapter 1. And fearing of, of what would happen if it was going to be another repeat of Daniel chapter 1 with Nebuchadnezzar, the Jewish high priest goes out to honor and to welcome Alexander as he comes in to Jerusalem. And not knowing about Alexander's dream, before he went out, the, great, the high priest said, all the people, all the Jewish people, put on your white worship robes, and he wore his ceremonial purple garment. And as this high priest goes out to meet Alexander the Great, Alexander is stopped in his tracks. And he looks at the priest and he says, you're the guy from my dream. And Josephus records, guys, and this is crazy, that at that moment, the high priest took him into the temple, 
and he opened up the scriptures to Daniel chapter eight. And the high priest said, Alexander, you're fulfilling prophecy today. God told us many, many years ago through Daniel that this day would come. You don't know our God, but he knows you, and we've been waiting for you. And upon hearing this, before he leaves Israel, Alexander asked the high priest, what can I do for you? And the high priest said, I have one request. When you conquer, which you will, because Daniel said you would, let us worship our God. And Alexander said, it's granted. And then historically, what we know is that under the Greek empire, the people of God could continue to worship God freely. How crazy is this? Is this insane? Crazy, bro. Thank you. But this, like when I was studying this, guys, my mind exploded. I was just like, what in the world? This is Daniel chapter 8. But this leads to the last character in this vision, the bold-faced man. Look at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn. So out of one of the, the four horns, right? So the four horns that replace Alexander the Great, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of, the trans- of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? I want you to underline that in your Bible. And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So if you remember, Alexander's kingdom following his death would be divided under the four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And these four generals, these are four smaller empires, but in Daniel's vision, it focuses on just one of them, a little horn who has a bold face that emerges from one of these empires. Look at verse 23, the interpretation. And at the later end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a bold face, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. And underline verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy many mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And underline this part too. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And Daniel, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, scholars are unanimous that the little horn or bold-faced man is the wicked historical king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who emerged from the Seleucid kingdom and he reigned from 175 to 163 B.C. And what's significant about this little horn, which is different from the little horn in chapter 7, right? The little horn in chapter 7, if you remember, is the end-time Antichrist. Antiochus here in chapter 8 is not the end-time Antichrist, but a type of Antichrist. 
right? This is like what the Apostle John speaks about, saying that there will be many Antichrists that come before the end. But Antiochus was basically the Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament. And verse 9 says that he turns his sight towards the glorious land. This is the land of God's chosen people. This is Jerusalem. And what we're seeing here, guys, I want you to know, is not just a shift of power in places and rulers, but it's a shifting of realms. And this is so important. This is something that I've been praying that our church family begins to learn as we study through Daniel. Because you need to know that there is a lot more going on in our world than you commonly think or see. You need to know that there's actually two realms, but for God, there's actually just one reality. There's the supernatural realm of the spiritual where where divine beings are, angels and demons. We see this all over Daniel, but we're going to see it a lot as we get into chapters 9 and 10. And so there's this spiritual realm of spiritual beings, but we're in the physical world with human beings. And what God is showing us is there is a lot more going on in our world than we see. And I hope you begin to see this. That what is happening in our physical world is connected to the spiritual world. We've been talking about this with the spirit of Babylon, and this is what the Apostle Paul talks about when you get to places like Ephesians chapter 6, that our, our war, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and spirits that at work in this world are invisible forces, spiritual forces in that realm. And here, along with other places in the Bible, God kind of just gives us a peek, a peek behind the curtain to give us a glimpse of our world and what it really is about. And what we see is that there are kings and kingdoms, and behind it, there's the host of the heavenlies. There's a spiritual reality behind every part of our physical reality that we live. Your life will begin to make much more sense if you actually understand these words from the Bible. But here, if you look at verse 24, it says that Antiochus, he was powerful, but he was not of his own power. That behind this evil king is the influence and the power of Satan and the demonic. And this is ultimately the spirit of the Antichrist, which we talked about last week. And the spirit of the Antichrist is really just this, guys. Whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. That God creates a kingdom and Satan has a counterfeit kingdom. That God has a king, his name is Jesus, and Satan raises up all kinds of counterfeit kings culminating in the Antichrist. And the historic actions of Antiochus are very similar and point to those of the Antichrist that will come before Jesus comes back. And from historical sources outside the Bible, we know that Antiochus Epiphanes was, he is a very violent man, a terrible man. He actually gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means God made manifest, that he viewed himself as God. He put his face and his name on all the coins of this time to get people to see him as God and worship him as God. People started not calling him Epiphanes, but Epitome, which meant madman. He was crazy. And in 168 BC, he attacked Jerusalem. And it, history records that in a couple of days, he killed upwards of 80,000 Jews. And then after that, he sold about 40,000 into slavery. And then on top of that, he went into the temple he kicked out the high priest. He set up a statue of Zeus, and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And then even more than that, he sought to destroy all the scriptures that the Jews had. And he put out an edict that said, if anybody is found with the scriptures, they were to be killed. And this is the transgression that makes desolate that's talked about in verse 13. 
But this is also the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 9 and what Jesus talks about in Matthew 24. But Antiochus spit in the face of God. He sought to destroy the people of God. He threw the scriptures on the ground. He walked on them. He desecrated all that God had set apart as holy. Very much like Belshazzar in chapter 5, and I would say very much the same spirit that is empowering Antiochus to do that is the same spirituality that's in our world today that would throw God's truth to the ground and spit in his face. History just repeats itself, keeps going around the same cul-de-sac. But this is what Antiochus did. And this is what Daniel saw in his vision. And Daniel didn't know that this was going to be Antiochus, and so he just gets sick But if you look at verse 13 and 14, there's this conversation of like, how long is this going to go on for? And there's two possible interpretations of these 2,300 years. I'm not going to nerd out on it a ton, but one says it could be just legit 2,300 days, which is like six years and three months. The other, since there was a sacrifice given in the morning and the evening by the Jewish people, this could be 1,150 days. So just over three years. But either way, depending on how you kind of align the time of Antiochus, these, these both work out and happen just as God showed. But what happened is in 164 B.C., the Maccabean Revolution took place. The Jews were given back the temple, restored their religion, and Antiochus, just as Daniel prophesied, was not killed during this war, in this battle, but actually suffered from a bowel disease and died, not by the hand of man. And it's almost like God just shows up and says, I will not be mocked. You're done murdering. You're done enslaving. You're done mocking me. And he kind of pokes Antiochus in the belly and takes him out. And the Jews still celebrate this today with the celebration of Hanukkah. This is actually what they're celebrating. But here's the point. I'm way out of time. God numbered the days of all these kingdoms and he numbered the days of Antiochus, and God numbers the days of Satan and evil, and will ultimately crush him, just like he crushed Antiochus, and he will come to an end, and Jesus will reign as king. See, this is ultimately what we call a dual reference. That Antiochus foreshadows, and he is a parallel to the final Antichrist, whom King Jesus will defeat in the future. So this is ultimately like a double prophecy. So let me just end with this. One truth for us to know, one way for us to live. First thing, one truth for us to know, God is in control. Our God is not just a God of history. Our God is a God who is over history and directing history. He's totally in control. And he's in control of who's in control. And that should bring us great comfort when we feel out of control. Amen? He's a father directing history, caring for his kids, and we can trust him. And in his sovereign control, he's doing everything to get the gospel of Jesus to people he loves. And in Daniel 8, we get a glimpse of his sovereign plan. Guys, think about this. He takes down Babylon through Persia to reestablish the temple for the preparing of the coming of Jesus. Then he takes down Persia, and the Greeks come on the scene. And under Alexander the Great, there's many things that the Greeks bring about that have influenced our world today, but they bring about a common language. 
God wanted there to be one language so that when Jesus came to the temple and he died and he rose in our place for our sin, that ultimately the news of his son would be able to go out into the world in a common language that everybody could understand. And this was all leading up to the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom prophesied in Daniel chapter two and seven, the largest, most powerful empire in the world where the Romans adopted the Greek language. There was one language in this entire empire that reached the ends of the world. And it was the Jesus who stepped in at the perfect time in the fulfillment of prophecy, showed up in the temple, went to the cross, he died, he rose from the grave, and upon his resurrection, people in Rome spread out with a common language and used the highway system that Rome built to take the gospel of Jesus to the entire world so that people can understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and that you are loved by him. And that is why we are here today. God has orchestrated a plan for human history that you could know Jesus. It's always about Jesus, guys. This is him doing this. God is in control, and he loves you. God said it would happen, and it happened, and I need you to know the truth. And his name is Jesus. And just as God foretold the past, he told us what's coming in the future. And I need you to know that sin is a very real problem in your life. Jesus will come back to defeat Satan's sin, death, and hell. And upon that time, if you are with Jesus, it will be the best day of your life. And that song that we sang before the sermon will make total sense. But if you have not come to Jesus, we love you enough to tell you that you absolutely need him. You have an enemy. It is sin. Satan wants to deceive you. He will deceive the nations until he comes back and Jesus comes and conquers him. But you need Jesus. You need to come to him so that he can take your sin because it is separating you from God. And then you can have a glorious future. This is the gospel. And then lastly, a way for us to live. As Daniel 8 ends with this, if you look back to that last verse, Daniel says, I rose and went about the king's business. Daniel got this vision, didn't fully understand, but he just went about the king's business, guys. Our lives need to be like Daniel, who just faithfully trusted God and went about the king's business. We're the church. We're living in these last days. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. And there's a job for us to do as the church, to faithfully walk for and like Jesus, for the glory of God and the good of the world. For the church, the church is not just about having a show every Sunday like this and everybody getting all dressed up and looking fancy. The church, we are the people of God, his representatives to the world. Let's live like that, for the glory of God and the good of the world. Pray with me. Father, I I love you. I truly do stand in, in awe of you and your power. God, I thank you that as I've been studying this book, my view of you has gotten so much bigger. And I'm not even close to the reality of who you are. But Holy Spirit, thank you for teaching us. Would you empower us 
to live like Jesus, for Jesus, towards the people of the world as we wait for Jesus to come back and establish the kingdom in fullness where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We need your help with this. Help us to be that kind of church that just is all about the business of our king. We just ask this in Jesus' name.